Welcome to the second edition of ARC Audio Book Club. My name is still Giovanna Alessandro, and the man you can't hear is Macon Holt, who's produced this episode. And today it will be about Miranda July's The First Bad Man. It's funny, it's dark, and it's troubling. This book is at least in part about inner and outer conversations, about languages, and about the things we can't say out loud. To the protagonist Cheryl, everything is of extreme importance, and that, obviously, complicates everything. Recognize it? This month on the panel are some of our volunteers in the shop. Minava Piertila, Toge Wigman and Nerea Ocheno. And just to give a short recap of the book for those of you who might not have read it or don't remember the chronology, and also spoiler alert. Cheryl is a 44-year-old woman who lives alone somewhere in California. Many days she works from home and leads a very quiet life until her bosses ask her to take in their 19-year-old daughter, Clee. Their relationship goes from one-way domination to mutual agreed-upon physical fights and ends with them becoming lovers, while in the meantime Clee becomes pregnant and gives birth to a baby boy who Cheryl falls madly in love with. I've already spoiled plenty, so I'll let you guys figure out the details for yourself, and I really hope you will. Okay, let's start. Uh, did you like the book, Nerea? I think "likes" a funny word. <laughs> I found it, I found it quite intriguing, and I read it quickly. I read it in like two days, mm. and um, and it wasn't difficult to read in two days. But I think Miranda July, in general, we've talked about this a few times before, that you're either like one hundred percent in her corner, or you're very much like ah, I don't, I don't, I don't touch Miranda July. And I think this one is the first time I've bit. Like I did, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it because of the way it was written, but I have no desire to read it again, which is different than her last collection of short stories. And then also like you, me and everyone we know her film. I, I've watched that. I don't know how many times I really liked that film. This one, I think I liked the way it was told in terms of the narrator, it didn't feel like the narrator was aware that she was telling a story, that you really felt like she was, you were just in her head kind of witnessing the way she yeah. thought. She yeah. wasn't like selling, saying this to an audience. This is just literally the way she went through her day and the way she gathered materials. Um, so if it had to come down to yes or no, then, then yes. When you say that you liked it because of the way it was written, was that in the way that you felt like you were just observing her everyday thoughts. I think that it's, she wasn't making a special show out of it because you were there. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just that most, most even when books are written in the first person narrative, it's it's usually that you're very aware that you're the reader. And this one, it felt like you were kind of not not even a fly on the wall, but like a forgotten neuron that still got to see what was going on inside her head. <laughs> so it wasn't self conscious. I, I didn't. I it, I really didn't feel when I was reading it. I didn't. I didn't feel that that the narrator was aware that she was telling her story to someone else. And I appreciated that, that it felt really genuine. Okay. Did you like it, Minerva? I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm really having trouble kind of explaining why, because I just liked it so much. Mm-hmm. I just I just kind of decided to like it from the get-go and it really worked out. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a really sort of a visceral experience of, of liking a book. I mean, yeah, I just, I had such a nice time reading it. Like one of the most, the best reading experiences in, in years, maybe. What about you, Tobi? Uh, I think I'm more in Naraya's boat, but probably more towards the meh than the yay. Why? I think mainly because I thought I'd read, I, I'd read this before. 
I've encountered this kind of neurotic uh, womanhood portrayed in this manner before that, and then suddenly there's a magical solution of having a baby. Otherwise, in somewhere else in the book, she says that she was tired when Philip comes into the her household. She says he was tired of being the, the heaviest, I don't think it was object or person. The heaviest person in the room. In, in the room. And I thought that was just, I mean, what the, what the fuck, you guys? It's, that's not, is that what the book is about? That her, she's looking for just a male partner, someone to take responsibility away from her? I, thought I don't think was, it has to be male, though. No, I think maybe, you're probably right there, but just someone. And I thought that was a bit, well, I, I think I've just encountered it too many times. That she's looking for something to make her happy, and that happy is partnership. So I think, and then a, and then a child, and then she goes through all these tribulations, and all her neuroticisms don't they don't never really fade away, but they kind of diminish. So the child becomes some kind of uh, symbol for a cure. Yeah, and that annoyed me as well. And she's just so weird, isn't she? So then when I don't think she's that weird. No, she's I don't weird think so. as hell. I don't she, think she's I, that weird. Are you kidding? She is the she her she's, system. Oh, that's weird. I think maybe she's also got that coping mechanism of thinking things through, mm. like some kind of cognitive element in which she tries to work through her loneliness. She is absolutely inherently alone, mm. and we have no idea how long she's been alone. But she says somewhere in the book, uh, that's the first one she's person she's kissed in years. Mm. We don't know much about her past, if anything. We know we've da- she's dated uh, Mark Kwan, an yes. alcoholic, which mm. was disastrous. She went on one date. Went on one date and, with him. And it seemed and like she, got- she was willing to continue dating, but he, like, uh, dumped her. Uh, it seemed like... Well, that's not the way she presents it. I think she presents until it as you, she, she didn't... Until you meet Kate. And then, you, meet then Kate. you start questioning, like, oh, maybe they didn't actually date. Yeah, it's a very strange encounter. And that's also part of the, the charm as to her weirdness is that it seems like a perfectly normal normal mechanism to invent a system to stay away kind of stave off that kind of depression that she probably faces on an everyday basis because we never get an explanation for why she's working at home her bosses tell her that it's better in some way or another and at one point we she tells us that she practically invented uh the system uh, of the taekwondo. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And why is she not on the board? And like, why but is again, she? Again, it's through her own. That's true. Her yeah, and that's, that's true. But she is the only like. She's the only. It's it's, it's another you know. Unreliable narrator is. But Holden Caulfield, yeah. like you know, it's another that you get it through their eyes. But it's I think in, including the fact that she is she's middle aged, but she's. And she's, she's not really. She's, she's, she's forty four. Yeah. Well, that. Well, that, that. But in terms of in terms of what like all the things that she wants, when when the biggest when like one of the strongest motifs in the book is is this child that she met when she was nine. When you're forty four, the chance of you having that child is very slim. Mm-hmm. So the things that she wants are now things that she knows she can't get. In the same way that you know we we do these things in our head to like you know not necessarily make. Not excuses, but it's definitely... I mean, it's easy to want something like that you know you don't have a chance of getting. Is that what you're saying? Not, not necessarily. Like, it's not that she... I don't think it's that she, she necessarily... She, she makes these other reasons as to why, of course, she doesn't have that yet. Or, of course, this and of course that. And, and 
which makes it easier for her to go about her everyday life and keep being Cheryl, which is what, I mean, I mean, I do it in other ways. I do things that I say like, oh yeah, of course it's not like that. So in order for me to keep being the Norea that I think I should be, you know, and it's easier when you're younger or that maybe they're a bit more trivial or not as a bit older. And especially if you're a woman, if what you want is something to do with, with, with a child and if it's not something with your career or something else, because she doesn't seem very driven by all these these other aspects. Um, she doesn't seem very driven at all, actually. I disagree. I don't think she... Well, what do you think dri- she's driven by? What do you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's an interesting point. I don't really know what it is, but I think she's... I think she's definitely striving towards something. Yeah? Or else, or else she w- the system would have already worked, or else she would have been surrounded by urinated cups, dead in her bed with no dirty dish in the sink. Maybe she has a certain amount of dignity that your system kind of symbolizes her personal dignity that she stands up to this, which is also mirrored in the way that she's the only person in the book who kind of respects and responds to responsibility. Yeah, and uh, someone no, no. said uh, earlier... The gardener. The gardener, that's true. The that's gardener. a fair point. That's, that's a fair true. Point. But someone said earlier that like she wasn't a very nice person, but I think she is. Except like in the beginning when she's doing that whole uh, smoothie talk of how she's always giving the new people at the work a oh, smoothie maker. Yeah, so yeah. like they can't really <laughs> complain about but, her. But, and but no but one. Hun, what about the smoothie maker? Yeah. Are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The great line. Yes. But I mean, except for that way, she seemed really mean and manipulative. She's quite nice and yeah, that's so weird she's thing. not a bad person and she just really wants what's best. Uh, I mean, for herself, yeah. Obviously. Yeah, she but, wants, it's very hedonistic. Yeah. It's a very hedonistic yeah, think, niceness. Yeah. But yeah, she's not but a... Who isn't? She's not a mean person and she's not um, awful in that way, but she's, she's slightly disgusting, very mm. pathetic. Mm. Yeah. Um, but only, but, but pathetic in the way that she can't stand up for herself. I, I relate some other aspects of being pathetic to her too, like peeing in cups and, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's like none of us... But she only does that at one point when she's at a total low. <laughs> okay. Excuse and I mean, no, excuse. No, okay, in the book she only does it at one point, but you know that... She must have done it before. And yeah, to, it seems be like a cycle, and now she's there again it's for a little in while. The system it's happened mm. before. I think the way that she's pathetic is not so much that she pees in cups. What I, I think I was one who said I didn't see if it was a bit unlikable in the way that she is so weak in the mm. face of adversity, in the way that Clee she, she can't handle Clee, and Clee is just in some way a very physical, sourly, very unlikable person. Mm. And she just takes it, and she keeps taking it. And it's not until they have the whole wrestling match and she gets the whole Globus Hystericus thing wears off a little bit and she realizes that she kind of needs this kind of human contact with another person that we realize that there's a purpose to it. Otherwise, she's just having this disgusting person walking up to her and yanking her chain. Hey, but there's this, and this is something I have a problem with uh, in the book, is that... I think that that change really happens after the other girl that works says, no, no, Clee wanted to live with you. She asked to live with you. And then suddenly there becomes this that? there becomes this shift. And that's when she goes to the, where is she working? Ralph's or something. She, okay. which is, yeah. Yeah, she yeah. goes to Ralph's and just points like, I know what's going on here, right? And then goes oh, yeah. home. And then, then the other girl's like, what the fuck was that? And then, but it's, and they never really explain, they never go over... Why Cheryl would have possibly, or why Clee would have chosen Cheryl, and 
especially since they don't quite know each other beforehand, or at least as far as we know. Like, it's not like, in my understanding, it's not that Klee understood this chick's really weak. I'll go there and I can, you know, mooch for as long as I can because she won't stand up for herself. They never really explain that process, which makes it a little bit more believable when then Cheryl and and Klee start this relationship. They're like, oh, well, maybe maybe it was the whole plan all along or maybe this mm, and that. Maybe. But it is, I, I don't... I think that Cheryl was quite pathetic and wasn't willing to stand up for anything. And it wasn't until Klee, she hears through the grapevine that Klee wanted to be with her that then she's like, oh, okay, actually, we both can get something out of this. And then it just switches in her head that, that she's needed by Klee and then becomes... Maybe that's part of the whole she's accepting responsibility for another person because she's looking she's for... Needed some, she's needed. Someone needs her. And that might also be like... Part of, part of her redeeming factor is that she accepts that responsibility when someone actually needs her. Maybe someone has never actually needed her in her entire life. Or maybe it's that she welcomes it too easily, that the need, that it's not actually need, but she kind of like forces it. That, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Which is what she does with all these random babies. That is hilarious. The, the first couple of times when, she, when we don't explain it, but she, like, she looked at the child to see if they had a special connection. They didn't. <laughs> it's also like another part of it it's hilarious in the beginning like the first 20 maybe 30 pages just full of great one-liners yeah. and then they kind of start to fade away and it seems like Miranda July just kind of went okay maybe I shouldn't do this anymore because it doesn't seem like Cheryl's hilarious Cheryl's not hilarious in the way that she's 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 great she's on on the spot she's got great lines she's funny it seems like it's like the narrator the the, the voice of the book is the one that changes tone, not so much her. Mm. But I, th- I thought the voice was uh, successful in that, you know, this is just, this is simply how Cheryl sees things and makes these, you know, <clears throat> crazy associations that to her, they're just, that's just what comes to mind. And then to us, it's laugh out loud funny. To me, it made total sense. I actually also think that she is funny. And I think that she knows that she's funny. But again, we're in her head. And when I tell a joke to myself in my head, I don't laugh. Like, it's not like... You don't? Afterwards, I'm not like, ha, 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 ha. It's kind of like, oh, that was clever. But I don't... You know, you, is that, does that make sense? Yeah, it yeah, does. It, yeah. But it, it, I guess it seems like situational humor. Like, a lot of it comes out funny because of the situation it's in, not because Cheryl is, is, a, is a prankster. She's definitely not a prankster. No, but I think, she's, I think she's quite clever. I think she's very sarcastic. I, I'm not sure clever is the word I'd be using. She doesn't seem intelligent, if that's what you're looking for. She doesn't seem like she doesn't seem stupid either, but she doesn't. No, I'm like, with you. Yeah, I don't find her strikingly. Yeah. No, but maybe she's just because she's so caught up in her own thoughts, and that's mm. all we know about her. Mm. That we don't know otherwise. We get these small hints that she said someone said about the her professional uh, abilities to kind of introduce these new systems into her workplace. And she is well, yeah. She's a victim of like everyone around her, and that's maybe why yeah, that's... you all find her so disgusting. Uh, yeah, because she, yeah. because it's not really in to be a victim. I mean, if this, if if we lived in a very Christian society, <laughs> I think she'd be a hero. But uh, we don't. She she is like the victim of everyone around her just realizing themselves and doing that like all over her. Yeah, but it's uh, also because she's not doing anything on her own. She's just she's just taking it. That's 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 why Klee walks all over her mm. because she's like oh okay oh no uh, oh you're making fun of me but that's ah. what being a victim is all about that's like I, doing nothing and yeah, just I know but that's that's part of the the whole dichotomy of it is that she's both a victim but also she's a victim of her own 
victimness. But at a certain point, like, almost everything with Clea, I think, yeah, Clea's walking all over her. But she's walking all over a lot of people. She's walking over tons of people. But when it comes to the baby, then I really question who won in that situation. Like, I think both of them got what they wanted. And to be honest, I didn't think it was a surprise at all that Philip was the father. Like, I called it from so early. Like, honestly, I saw it so fast. Were you surprised when you find out that she's not talking to the baby? That the that the gardener's wife is there? And Uh, she's saying, it's it's really... Yeah, I, I, that was like yeah, you're actually not that was saying scary. anything out loud. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. To me, that was horrible. But I think that was actually one of the best points in the book of the reader and the narrator feeling the same thing at the same time. Because beforehand, yeah. you're always like you know you're just kind of looking at her and saying like yes, yeah, she, this child's been living in just like everyday noises because everything had been in italics. But you're used to the whole book being in italics yep. mostly. But it, but it matches yeah. perfectly her uh, dialogues with yeah, all the Kubel Kabani babies. Him all the time. Uh, what are you talking about? Yeah. He knows all these words. Yeah. We understand it. He's very smart. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the whole thing with Klee, mm. I really wonder who who won in terms of her getting the baby is that Klee got away with not being a bad Christian or a Catholic, whatever she is. And and she's not, I'm not sure she's anything. <laughs> For instance, yeah. I think I think they said like she went to like yeah, she, she, parents they, online. Yeah, her her like parents that. said it was something because all her friends had done it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Deal. So that was naturally why she wanted. So of course she would never. I thought that little bit about like what is it that she says? Uh, are you are you anti-abortion? And then she's like, I said I'm definitely pro living. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, pro living. Great lines that just yeah, the great yeah. And but you even when she, she says is. that, even when she says that, you know that she was calculating it. Like I didn't want to say pro life because I'm not pro life. She says I'm on the side of life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's what's the word she uses for the baby? The what does she wants to she wants to call it something completely ridiculous. Little fatty, a little, little fatty, fatty. Yeah. and and then Cheryl goes. Whatever name was coming next was going to be the name of the baby. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I mean by her, who wins in that situation of yeah. the pregnancy. And this, especially when you know that her whole, since she was nine, she's been having these conversations with all these, oh, every yeah, single infant yeah, she, she meets. Like and then so she meets this woman who is kind of a woman, but still very much a girl, but definitely a woman. And sees this opportunity and then kind of falls in love but does she really fall in love or does she just attach to this whole thing but she got exactly what she wanted from the beginning when you know that her biggest desire was to find this what is it Kabelko Bondi mm. from when she was nine and she doesn't find exactly him but she finds something close enough that's going to love her back in the way that everyone else that we meet in the book at least in this two year three year period doesn't mm. and And that's why I really, like, I wonder how strategic it is. I really wonder how strategic the whole thing is from... What is? As soon as Klee gets pregnant, I think that there's a different sort of... Not that it's explicit in the book, but after you start start to learn her character. And she has so many things with Philip, like, oh, well, don't worry. I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait until it's the perfect time. I'll wait. We've gone through all these lives together, and soon it will be... She's someone that can sit in the grass and wait for the right, right time to strike. And we think she's pathetic for sitting in the grass, and I still think she's pathetic for sitting in the grass all the time. <laughs> but at the same, if if this baby was her, you know, like her big kill, her like suddenly I have something that's gonna love me that I can mm-hmm. mold in this mm-hmm. way that I want. She waited in the grass for the perfect amount of time where she didn't have to do all this. She didn't. It wasn't the perfect 
kill for her, but it's still something she got. And I really, I haven't decided if I think that that's good or bad, but I, I really think that she won in that situation. And everyone thinks like, oh, Klee walked all over her and now she's stuck with this baby, but all she wanted was a baby from since she was nine. Yeah, I'd never say she was stuck with it. She yeah. just accepts the responsibility that no one else in the book does except the gardener. Mm-hmm. Because Klee's parents are assholes, which is probably why Klee's a dick. Mm-hmm. Because there's absolutely, like, they're despicable human beings. They don't want, what is the, they don't want a connection to him. They want a connection to him when he's grown up, so they might. That's natural. That's so by that's choice. natural. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like human and we, that, we will know like each human, other as human beings. Yeah, exactly. Beings. Like, what the yeah. fuck is that? Yeah. Like, who, also, who does want to be a grandparent? None of the responsibility. Exactly. You just go, oh, that's a cute baby boy. Yeah, he's yeah. pooping. There you go. He's crying. Taking yeah, it. no. I dealt with you when you were younger. Yeah. That's not going to translate well in podcasts. Don't be shy, it's a waste of time We're gonna work it out It seems so obvious for you Hey everyone, this is an advert That they have in real podcasts Only we're keeping it in-house Anyway, Christmas is about to arrive But then it'll pass And then it'll be New Year's Which will also pass So we thought that an afternoon of music From French singer-songwriters Captain Lovelace and La Spectre might be just what you need. This is the captain. Here's La Spectre. Along on Sunday, the 3rd of January, 2016, the beginning of their Scandi Fever tour. Check out our Facebook page for more information. Also, don't forget this Sunday, so that's the 29th of November 2015, 7pm, It's the final installment of Arc Noir. This week's theme is Neo-Noir, so come along for some ambience, readings, and a film screening. Now back to the book club. Is, is there <laughs> feminism in this book? And I should say something, I don't know, there was, I saw that that was in your notes, but I didn't really connect with that. No, but I, like it's something it's that I really wanted to talk about, but I couldn't make sense of it. So. But maybe it's because the two characters that are involved in this relationship kind of represent two like the the polarities mm-hmm. of females within. Especially yeah, Klee, within Klee describes herself as Klee, a misogynist or something which, like it, that. It, which is also like so. Klee physically, she's described as this very, very like you know, she's got she's she's very busty. She's blonde. She's this and that. Like she's this sort of like pinup playboy girl who's then extremely dominating and kind of vulgar and likes to be more manly in her approach, if you want to use those terms. And then Cheryl is quite slight and older and she discussed how she, like she's like looking at her breasts and like, oh, if they were bigger than this and that. And she's the very submissive one. And so I think that makes it a bit hard to... It's kind of like feminism fighting itself. It's like these two cliches going at it and then they fight and then they're, I, w- I definitely wouldn't say in love um, at all. And then they're nothing. <laughs> and so I think it's, it's really hard for the feminism debate. I think, it, I don't, I think it's, I actually think it'd be quite um, uh, searching to try and say that it was part of it. I think you're really kind of like, if none of us immediately feel anything about it, mm-hmm. I think yeah. just because it's written by a woman doesn't mean it has to be a feminist <coughs> novel. And I think that that's one of the problems that 
that I don't think this is a feminist novel mm-hmm. in that way. It seems no. there's just an example of rampant sexuality and then that kind of emerges from both of them, really. Just that Cheryl's becomes more of a surprise throughout the book because we don't expect it as much. Mm-hmm. So she fantasizes about Philip and she does it in a way through Clee, who then discovers that she's doing this. And that's a very strange moment. And then in this fantasy, and real, you know, Cheryl imagines herself being Philip. And yeah, plowing of, yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Having her way or his way with, with Clee. Yeah. And then Clee kind of, I, I think that's one of the weirdest moments is that Clee confronts her with this. Yeah, what did she know? How did she know? You know when someone's extremely sexualizing you. It's it's. I mean, she no, but, says but, it. But, but how does she know? How does she know that she's doing the? But flip? but the psychiatrist. How does she know she's manifesting a dick between her legs? Yeah, but I don't know if she knows that she's that she's. Okay. Does she say that, that she recognizes that it's Philip? No, she doesn't I, say Philip, but she she says something like you're doing you're sexualizing me, like you're doing something to me. Yeah. That isn't what we're doing here. Like it isn't this whole. Yeah. wrestling thing that we'd been doing before like she sees that it's something else you know that's Cheryl exercising power over Clee whereas in As the a, real world she's more of the yeah the dainty little flower due to just the fact that she's weak is that because she's taken on the male like dominance kind of deal Perhaps. do you think the roles yeah the roles do switch as Nerea said when the, she uh, finds out that uh, Klee wanted to live with her, and then she goes to the supermarket and like, stares at her. Mm. But it was the same with the psychiatrist. She's at the psychiatrist Ruth Ann's office, and Ruth Ann yeah. is saying like, no, 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 not with me. You can do that with everyone else, but not with me, because she has like been staring at her. For, I think a little bit too. Yeah, long. she's kind of doing like a lead-in with a couple lines when she's having that conversation with her um, about. Philip and then yeah, Ruth Ann just kind of cuts that fantasy short. It's like they can tell that she's doing something, but because we're inside her head most of the time, we don't know how they know this. Yeah, I mean, she might be drooling or something. She might, she might be doing, as you say, like really looking. But just like staring, really spacing out. Spacing out and staring at him, and then maybe she's like rubbing herself a little bit or something like that. I don't know. I don't think it has to be as explicit as that. Me uh, neither, but, that, I'm but just, I just think it could well be because <clears throat> we don't know. Yeah, we only hear. The internal monologue. Mm. But wouldn't the psychiatrist then say, like, stop masturbating in front of me? <laughs> Get <laughs> your might, head out of your But she's Ruth Ann, and she's, she's also, she enjoys that I kind should, of submissive role. I have that part said. here. Whereas if she was doing that with Clee, that would, you know, almost pass, because that's, mm. yeah. it might happen. Here, okay. <clears throat> Suddenly, Ruth Ann stood up. No, she barked, slapping her hands together violently. Stop immediately. My blood went cold. What? What? She crossed her arms, walked once around a chair, and then sat again. Not okay. Not okay to do with me. Okay with Philip. Okay with a janitor or a fireman or a waiter. Not okay with me. She was talking to me like I didn't understand English. I felt like a gorilla. My <laughs> finger went to my eye. Maybe she made me cry. No. No, she hadn't. I don't want to be a part of it. Her voice was a little softer now. She gestured toward the window. There's a whole world of people you can use, but not me. Do you understand? Yes, I whispered. Sorry. Okay, but before that, maybe I should have said earlier. Yeah, what's, what's... But um, she's describing who, what Clea looks like. And she's saying what she looks like, and she's describing her. And there's things like, I nodded encouragingly. Ideally, she would say shapely or curvaceous in a clinically approving way. Mm. <laughs> um, and, then, and then Cheryl says, 
any man would become stiff looking at her, right? Uh. And then she says, I had hoped I would be brave enough to use one of Philip's words in front of Ruthann, and I was. It was working, my groin felt warm and full of cream. As soon as I got home, I would use the Ruthann watching fantasy, and that's when it starts from uh. when I started. So it is like, of course, there must have been something that came across her face. It's like, ah, oh, now this is Some working, kind of now I'm aroused. Or, feature we can't. But it's, I think in general, and it's, I think it's the same thing with Klee, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's quite easy to see when someone becomes, especially if someone, especially if someone's been deprived for so long. Yeah, that and might with be someone fun. who lives so much in their own head that they, she's probably usually able to make these faces or whatever, and no one ever notices. So yeah, she doesn't. She's not quite aware of when she's doing things that are that noticeable. That like, ah, oh. are we still talking about the feminist question? I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Because no one really. No, nah. this seems I really. I don't think it's a feminist. I don't novel. think any yeah. of this is feminism Sorry. per se. Mm-hmm. Like gender, yes, and and sexuality. Or... Sexuality for mm-hmm. sure, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, I I wouldn't know what to say. But it's interesting feminism. talking gender without talking feminism. Usually it's like I don't know. It's very much feminism. Intertwined. But maybe it's because they are intertwined. Maybe it's because a female author with two female characters in a sexual situation, that then maybe even as a reader you don't really. This maybe gets a bit out further than where we want to go, but that you don't assign as many roles to the dominant character and to the submissive character because if Clee were Philip I think we'd be like oh yeah this is kind of or vice versa actually if Cheryl were Philip and Clee were Clee then it would be like classic mm. older man fetishizes um, younger woman and but it doesn't and it doesn't happen well. here we have that as well with Philip and true. Uh, what's her name Kirsten the 16 year old yeah, yeah that's true yeah, and uh, Phil is the <laughs> Phil is the one that uh, Cheryl is very much in love with, and he is in love with a sixteen-year-old girl, and he wants Cheryl's permission to consummate the relationship. And he sends the vilest text messages. But because Cheryl's considered a feminist, <laughs> wants her permission. But I w- I'm wondering. It was really surprising for me when Cheryl meets Kirsten in the waiting room and then Kirsten says I can't believe you told an old man it was okay yeah. to have sex with a child mm-hmm. and I had to like stop and it wasn't even anything I had considered as a reader no. as no. well I was like oh yeah yeah <laughs> <That's> true <laughs> like that's shit <laughs> yeah I, I felt like, like a pig yeah I was like <laughs> what are you gonna say Cheryl is it okay is it not 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 like yeah this is 100% no, ask our parents or something like that I hadn't it had never even come across to me Mm-mm. But yeah, that's Philip, and uh, at one point, I want to read the passage out loud, Um, because he's a horrible person. Uh, He's a pathetic person. I think he's the most pathetic person in the book, actually. Yeah, he is. Mm. Arguably, arguably, yeah. But he he is is talking to her on the phone, and this is before she knows that he's in love with this 16-year-old girl, and he's kind of like warming up by talking about love between two people, and this is what he says. I think everyone who is alive on Earth at the same time is fair game. The vast majority of people will be so young or so old that their lifetime won't even overlap with one's own. And those people are out of bounds. And she says, on so many levels. Right. So if a person happens to be born in the tiny speck of your lifetime, why quibble over many years? It's almost blasphemous. Although, there are some people who barely overlap, I suggested. Maybe those people are out of bounds. You're talking about babies. 
Well, I don't know, he said pensively. It has to be mutual and physically comfortable for both parties. I think in the case of a baby, if it can somehow be determined that the baby feels the same way, then the relationship could only be sensual or maybe just energetic, but no less romantic or insignificant. He passed. I think this is controversial. I know this is controversial, but I think you get what I'm saying. He is a vile person. He, he is, is the first super Batman. Disgusting. But he is the first Batman. Isn't he, he is. He is. He's absolutely abhorrent, and that's why you keep wondering after a while, why does Cheryl want him? Mm. And what? everything he says, she will make into something nice in her own head. But also she both, why does Cheryl want him, and why does why does he need Cheryl to give the permission to? Yeah, because because she's a feminist. I mean, that's a funny argument. Even then, even when he says it, you think. Mm-hmm. Do you need like a third person to to acknowledge that this is fine that you're plowing a sixteen year old up the butt or something like that? I mean, <laughs> what is this? Well, his tech is te- plowing much more comfortably this time. I appreciate that. Yeah, you're <laughs> so yeah, that that is interesting that he's he's he is such a vile character and he he doesn't have any redeeming factors. There's nothing about him that you go, oh okay, he's actually he's actually not that bad. He's actually he's bad all the way. Yeah, it just gets worse mm-hmm. and worse. His texts are hilarious though. Like the whole caps lock thing really gets me. When he goes, yeah. I think one of them's like, she stripped, she stripped in front of me. Ugh. Like, <laughs> Who the? Oh my! And the and this, you can imagine the noise of this older man. And then when oh my god, when she's doing the sex. And in the end, you find out sex, that he can't really have sex and that he can't yeah. climax and that he has to <laughs> spend like thirty minutes uh, looking at porn. But you see, I think that I thought that part was much more of a statement about like age. Yeah, I thought that was that yeah. much more about like how relationships change. I have no idea what it's like to have sex with a sixty-year-old man, but I think there's a lot of things in this book, especially when with Cheryl and Philip and their relationship, and also Cheryl and Clee, that there's a lot having to do with age, and a lot having to do with what's expected and what's like cool and when uh, people expected to be expected this of me at this time and and maybe because from what we know of Cheryl, she hasn't had that much experience that then to be with this guy that's older and all women you know imagine that an older guy has more experience and it's gonna be this way and that way and all these different things but then to see that it maybe isn't quite that way he's such a disappointment he's an extreme disappointment and kirsten you know warns her of this in a sort of like yeah he had to do his phone thing and it was like it was okay (laughs) and when a 16 year old thinks that sex is okay it's kind of like well yeah, I don't want. Probably that. wasn't that good. <laughs> um, but, but I do think that a lot with with Cheryl and Philip has to do with their ages and and what's considered you know acceptable and what isn't considered acceptable, and the fact that Cheryl had no idea that when someone says look at their phone it had anything to do with porn. Uh-uh. And like, she's been oh, tiny. Come on, come on Cheryl. <laughs> come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to find and everything the, the and, and, and one pu- like sexualizing one point she can't stop and she keeps on uh, seeing Klee in all these situations mm-hmm. yeah where like her like Klee's dad is having sex with her mm-hmm. in a very explicit way and Phil is and yeah the plumber the plumber the stock boy the everyone and the fact that her biggest fantasy is to continue doing that in like smaller and smaller and smaller rooms over and over yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One Which, move, again, one I didn't think was that weird. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one thing that's interesting yeah. is that masculinity yeah. is portrayed as, as extremely negative. The male sexuality is actually 
problematized quite a bit. Is that Phil, only because of the absence of men, or...? No, because she... Why does she have to take on Phil to explore her own sexuality? Why does she need a proxy? On the other hand, why is Phil such a vile old man? Is that... And then there's... The only decent male person is Rick. And we don't know much about him. And the, one, and the one... He's the homeless guard. Yeah, the yeah. shop boy. And then the one shop boy who keeps coming by because he feels bad. Yeah, that's... Their, but yeah. he's also very short-lived. Yeah, but we, yeah, exactly. We, they're like short instances in, in the narrative. Otherwise, it's Phil who dominates as the kind of... And then the, the Dr. Broyard, who's mm. also a strange... Terrible Terrible individual. I guess it kind of keys into the title, of course, that it's about the problems of... There's a lot of first Batman in this book. There's a lot of rampant sexuality that's problem from a male perspective anyway but the nice ones they're they're also they're still there mm. and i would just i would just basically th- say that that uh philip is more interesting than the nice gardener <laughs> because nice sure. isn't you know nice isn't flashy but I, I don't think it's a coincidence that cheryl falls for philip um philip the the semi-pedophile or Nothing pedophile in the coincidence. so i do see sort of the real life logic in it mm. potentially yeah sure but what would Cheryl see in a person, uh, in, in a normal, healthy, balanced guy who, who wasn't a total freak? But she doesn't need a total freak because she has a very rich inner life where she will make up the person that she needs. Um, like she is making Phil out to be a much nicer person in her head, I think. And she can explain his extreme behavior. Um, yeah, she doesn't find him unusual, actually. Mm-mm. I think she's, more than anything, she's upset that he's writing things to someone else that she wants to be said to her. Maybe she needs an anchor. I really wonder how it was the very first time she met Philip. Like, what was it about? Because let's keep in mind that it's not like he, it's not like Ruthann and Dr. Broyard, who she always compares herself to. But Dr. Broyard has a wife and he has a family, and he's like... And he's there three times a year? Three times a year, and he's very aware that he's doing something wrong. Whereas Philip is, as far as we know, doesn't have a family, doesn't have a wife, he doesn't have... He's, and no he's, sense of moral. He's this guy that's, that's older, that is apparently fucking amazing, but is still going after 16-year-old girls and getting color therapy. Not that there's anything wrong with color therapy, but... We recommend it here from our books. <laughs> I I've never heard of this. I was, I would, I, is that a genuine thing? Is that a thing? I yeah, haven't heard of it. I haven't heard yeah. of it. Like, I don't know anyone that's done it, but I d- definitely believe it. Mm-hmm. But it's, 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 and I think that's a very big point with, with, with the question you asked, like, what would Cheryl see? Because she also sees herself as Ruth Ann. She's like, oh, we're, we're similar. You know, we're these women that want these men that, don't really know that they want us, but we have to convince us them that, like, I've seen this before, and and they're not the same. And Dr. Broyard and Philip aren't the same. No. And Philip is, he's a really pathetic character, but she doesn't see him that way. And she doesn't see all those 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 adjectives you use to describe him as, you know, a pedophile. And no, 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 no. And it's, it's you know, in the beginning, his weird isn't out there, but no. still, you know... We're all drawn to certain types of people due to who we are, and mm-hmm. it's a subconscious mechanism. Um, and obviously that also comes to play with Cheryl in some way, in, in one way or another. Yeah, she's simple in the way that she's, her inner rich inner life is, is interesting, but like what she might need or what she thinks she needs is, is just another person to 
Yeah. She needs love. Which is why I think that she's the one who wins when she chooses. I think you're right yeah. about that. Absolutely. Of course she's, she wins, because yeah. Klee would be a terrible mother. Yeah, and at first you think, But Klee oh, probably really wins as well. And they both no win. One there's, really no one, there's no loser here. And that's why you wonder... Phil. Phil, well, Phil doesn't really lose, because he doesn't, he doesn't see it as an opportunity. He, no. he doesn't see it. He, he's just like, well, it's not my... I can't feel it here, and he knocks on his chest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, because I can't feel it, it's not my child. And it's like... Yeah, because it seems a little bit standoffish. Yeah, yeah, you know, because Jack's standoffish. Like, yeah. Well, obviously not his kid then. Mm-mm. And that's, that's, that's... I don't think Phil has gone through life without not being an asshole to people, but not really realizing it. Because he's so self-absorbed yeah. most of the time. I think the one point where Cheryl realizes that is when she's describing his toothbrush. Yeah, but it's and oh it's yeah, like, it's oh, crusty, it's grubby and crusted with his <laughs> yeah, with like his this saliva brown and this like, that oh, that's been sitting there for who knows how many months, and I think that's her first realization, like oh he's not because her house is very meticulously mm. clean, mm-hmm. and she sees like oh he brought his toothbrush and like. And he's actually a real person. Oh, suddenly, he's not just a product of her fantasy. He's someone who climbs on top of her and then goes, "You can't climax either." Well, I haven't been able to do that for a while. And he calls them an elderly couple, and I'm like, "Fuck off!" She's (laughs) forty-four. Don't drag her into this. And she says that as well, but he kind of brushes it off. Yeah, that's one of the first time that she acts very clearly and without ambiguity as well. She tells, she says to him, isn't it, maybe home is somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Like she's not, there, there's, there's a very strong statement. Mm-hmm. And she's not backing down. She's not timid or, or like crawling back into her inner life or anything. She's actually just telling him, this isn't home for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's because she has, yeah, exactly. Because she has Jack and she needs to take care of him. I mean, I think all in all, it's it's kind of a a classic story about, yeah, Cheryl. She doesn't get what she wants, but she certainly gets what she needs, and it comes <laughs> in an unexpected package. And to me, this book was all about that inner outer language, of uh, the conversations, and then what goes on in her own head, and like how we will explain the reality to make it more bearable. Very well illustrated in this book. Hmm. Uh, too much at points, but uh, it it shows it perfectly. Yeah, it's also show, yeah it just shows a lot of a wide array of broken people. Like they've all got these great character flaws, which is why I think one of the reviews called it a, a tragic comedy, which is which seems true enough to a certain extent, of course, but at the same time it seems more tragic at times than. It's so dark. Funny because it's actually it's really, really dark. dark. They have, they have yeah. these really fundamental character flaws, which is very much like a, like a tragedy, like a Greek tragedy. But the catharsis only comes for one of them. No one dies. Yeah. But at the same time, we have this sense of, of despair, through, especially the middle of the book, before Cheryl has this and Clee has this entire uh, flowering phase. Hmm. Yeah, I felt the opposite because... Uh... Oh, that's interesting. Well, let's hear it then. <laughs> um, yeah, because because everyone is just everyone is so fucked up and and just but they all get to exist and coexist. Mm. Um, and you know, Cheryl is is so strange to me at least. Um, and like, I can only wish that I never get that weird. But I'm mm. a little bit weird, and so is everybody else. And so I feel like if Cheryl gets to exist and have her voice be heard. 
uh, in the way, like through this book, then, then, then so can I, then my existence is also okay. I think that's that that that's very much in like all these characters, and we all agree that they're all fucking weird, and everyone's a little bit fucked up, and I, I can't even think of. Maybe, yeah, no, everyone's a little bit weird, <laughs> yes. um, and and I think that's part of it. You that at a certain point in the book, you really, especially when it comes to Clay's pregnancy, that you're really trying to decipher who's good, who's bad, what's this, what's that. Is Philip a good mm. guy? Is he a bad guy? Who are all the guys that Cleese slept with? Actually, we don't really know any except for one guy she was sitting on at a party and then one, then random men who looked at her in stores, you know? And you spend all your time trying to figure out if someone's good or bad. Every single character is not really necessarily good or bad, but you're constantly trying to take sides uh, for every single person that you come across eventually. And I think that also has to do with the title. You're trying to figure out who the first bad man is. That's the guy from the video. Yeah, and I actually I just found that um, that passage is the second time Cheryl reveals that it's from a DVD that she's not like coming up with them on her own, but there's it can be rehearsed. Yeah, realistically. So it's the second time they do an actual movie. The next evening, we did the entire DVD in order. Gang defense was the most confusing because there were two bad men and another man in all denim who didn't want trouble. Hey, he said to the others, this isn't cool. Let's scram. Cleese switched roles between the three men with no warning. I was constantly stopping to reorient myself. What are you doing? She hissed. I'm over here. Which one are you? She hesitated. Until now, there had been no overt acknowledgement of the video or that we were anyone but our own angry selves. I'm the first man, she said. The one in denim? No, the first bad man. It was the way she was standing when she said it, her feet planted wide, her big hands waiting in the air. Just like a bad man, the kind that comes to a sleepy town and makes all kinds of trouble before galloping off again. She wasn't the first bad man ever, but the first I'd ever met who had long blonde hair and pink velour pants. Oh, wow, that's really obvious, actually. Yeah, and it's, yeah, like, especially when she says, I was constantly stopping to reorient myself. And I, it's like, wait, which one are you? The first Batman. And, no, but it's and just, then Miranda yeah. July's first question is, or she says the first man, and Miranda's question, or not Miranda, sorry, <laughs> Cheryl's. Cheryl's question is the one in denim, which is the good one. And she's like, no, 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 the first bad one. It also kind of figures in the way that Clee is the first bad man to Cheryl because she is the kind of person that comes into town and makes trouble mm. for Cheryl but she shakes things up in a good way she reveals perhaps down, down the road to Cheryl that her life was miserable that's why she needed the system and she's probably we don't know if she still keeps that in, intact after Jack's grown up or anything which kind of leads me to the ending mm. of the book where she has that fantasy about the ba- the fantasy baby returning to her the from epilogue China. epilogue with no names. Yes. <laughs> and then that actually happens. And Cheryl's there and Cleese there, but we don't know the two people having a conversation. We don't know who they are. Well, I think it's obviously Jack. Well, yes. Yes, probably, but we who's hope. the other one? It's the girlfriend. Jack's in- but I think that is the <laughs> way Jack's... Where do you, how do you... you I think it's don't. Jack's parents. I think she gives away Jack to a different family. That's what I think. Really? That's really? what I thought, yeah. To me, 
is the epilogue is about how she keeps on telling herself these stories and has that inner monologue and this is a product of a fantasy it doesn't necessarily happen uh but that is just what she imagines will happen oh, maybe. but i think it's definitely jack and yeah jack's yes girlfriend, jack, i guess I think. Because now they live in this beautiful faraway land and they're coming to visit for the first time. Yeah, I don't really think the epilogue is that important. At least it wasn't to me. Because No, I actually wished it wasn't there. Yeah, because I don't... Who needs it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so before the epilogue, there's this other ending which is actually very powerful compar- compared to the epilogue. Mm. Where, where she, as I said, refuses him and he and he's he trying to find some excuse for why he doesn't connect to him. He calls him Jack Standoffish and then... He just he just leaves. Chilly reception. Yes, and then he, he jabs his chest, and it makes a hollow sound, which is very significant, of yeah. course. And that's so a lot more. So it can be his son. No, he, he that's why that's why it can't be his son. I think the best thing about this ending before the epilogue is mm-hmm. that it actually leaves Cheryl somehow in a stance of not only I don't know if I want to say power, but it seems like sound mm-hmm. mind when she's like, all right closed the door, watched him go, and I laid down, best to try to sleep before the day began. Mm. And, and most like, definitely, she's, she's gone through a development and that becomes sort of poignant in the, mm. yeah, in the end when she's confronted with the, the first sort of object of irrational desire, which is Philip, who then turns out to be really quite sad. Mm. And then, yeah, and then he leaves, which, which has potential to be devastating, but instead it's the right thing. Mm. I liked the development of Cheryl. It was a bit didactic, maybe. No. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, she starts off as being alone and having no one and she ends up... But is that perhaps... I think that perhaps is my biggest problem with the book, is that is that how to fix mental problems? Mm. Have a child? Really? No, not but necessarily. That's not problems, but it's but it's it's Cheryl. It's not. I don't think. And I think it's more neurotic problems that started yeah. off from being well, really she's, lonely. Then she's not. She's neurotic to the point mm-hmm. of. Mm, yeah, maybe she's not even but, fit but to again, care for. But again, someone. I think it's lonely problems. I think I think all of her neuroticisms are based upon being alone. Like even everything she does, her whole system is based upon being found alone, and that like there's not much to clean up. You know, like it's all. No, I understand. But then, kind of, what, what, what's the chicken and what's the egg? Because I do mm-hmm. think that she has ended up alone, because she is. I mean, it's autistic, maybe, or it could be a bunch of things. But I think that might also be why she, you know, works from home and, um, and also why people just see her kind of in a strange way and treat her in a strange way that isn't explained. It's just dated. So I think that kind of encapsulates not only the novel, but especially Cheryl, is that there's the sorrow of separation, which kind of leads into the sorrow of of loneliness because she's always looking for this other. She's always looking for uh, this magical baby or she's looking for another connection. So I think that actually strikingly true, the kind of observations that you two made about it, that her neuroticisms might just be the a manifestation of her loneliness more so than anything else that's why everything goes on inside her head because she doesn't have anything to talk to and and this you know ever going search for for the connection with baby like an, a, any baby um it's 
it's it's so sweet first of all and secondly you know she's it's blurry whether it's a mother child or a wife husband connection mm. oh yeah very strong yeah yeah that is actually interesting don't worry i know i'm waiting for you yeah yeah i know yeah. my little husband she refers to one of them really yeah my tiny that. husband it reminded me so much of joan didion who okay. played as it lays which is set in, in this post-60s universe that is extremely disillusioned. And it's set in California. It didn't remind me in the way that it's, this is a drug-filled book or anything, but that the main character in that book also locates her happiness in conservative values, in a child, in her child, in, a, in looking for a husband, looking for security and love. And I don't think necessarily think it's a problem that you can find love in that it just it seems to make sense but at the same time I don't think it's an, an original thought I think what shines through especially in Miranda July's case is that she writes quirky characters really well but I don't think the idea of happiness through family or the other is is in any way a touching subject no because it's not so unusual it's exactly. It's, it's yeah, and I, I agree with you. It's not original, but I do think that she makes it a little bit more. She takes certain things. She takes a very simple idea and uses extreme aspects to narrate it. And again, I think that it really reflects a lot of the ways, at least for me, that 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 I navigate through the world that are similar, where you're constantly trying to figure out: is this person good or bad? Is this this or is this that? And you're doing all these things and possibly missing out on a lot of other factors. Like, for instance, I really like this guy, but then again, he's, he's sending me these texts. Okay, he's texting me, but not really realizing what he's saying in these texts. Like, should I have sex with a 16-year-old girl? Oh my God, he texted me. You know, <laughs> like, maybe, yeah. maybe read into it a little bit more <laughs> before you. So I'm curious, uh, Minerva, would you recommend this book? Uh, yes, I would, I would absolutely recommend the book. But then as to why, it's, it's really hard to say. And because it's, I mean, I just, I feel a bit stupid and naive for liking it this much, but I really, really liked it for no particular reason, besides the fact that I just liked it a lot. I think that's nice. But that's also, but that's how it is with sort of favorite things and mm. yeah, yeah, things and experiences and with people you don't, sure, like you, you, you can list a bunch of pros and cons about everything and then make a mathematical calculation as to whether good or bad but it's mm -hmm. yeah it's sort of this visceral feeling that you get and i just i i had such a nice time also um i think it really is extremely funny mm -hmm. i mean yeah. i i appreciate yeah. funny things <laughs> but 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 i never laugh out loud at entertainment like i can i don't know i can be watching a funny movie and and see something that i know to be very humorous and then i just kind of acknowledge it and go well done and then with a serious Move on. <laughs> We're so Finnish. <laughs> like, <clears throat> at maximum, I just, you know, I just kind of get this vibration inside of me that means that I'm somewhere, I'm laughing. <laughs> but, but that's it. But I read this uh, on a flight, actually, kind of, yeah, from beginning to end in one sitting. And I just, I laughed the entire way through. And it was, it was just, it was wonderful. It was beautiful. And I feel like everyone who was on the flight with me, they got a... They got a, a really different picture of me as to how I see myself. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun yeah. having. It was really I've that was the most fun that I've had with a book in years. And I've I feel like I've told everybody. Okay. What about you, Toby? 
Would you recommend it? I would recommend it for the funny bits and for situational humor. And also because Married to July creates a very authentic universe. But I would also say that it does not contribute to any kind of new research or ideas on that subject that it handles. What do you think, Norea? I would recommend it mainly because I think it's very well written. I think when a book is that easy to turn pages with mm -hmm. and there was never, like, I didn't stumble over sentences. It was very, like, even dialogues and going between being in her head and talking to people and this and that. It was easy to read in a way that you wanted to keep going. Not like it was simple, but that it was well written. Um, it has a good flow. Very good flow. Yeah. And, and yeah. I'm, um, the book's uh, upside down in front of me now and I, I just want to just... I'm just going to piggyback on the observers. <laughs> the observers, what they say about it. And it's... Um, Stuff I've never said out loud before. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to piggyback on the observer. But it's heartbreakingly sad, thoughtful, disgusting, and hilarious. And I think that that's actually quite, quite well, well said. I don't know if... I, I wouldn't... Rec I don't think that people necessarily like it, but I would recommend reading it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It was an enjoyable... But it's definitely in like top 200, but I don't not have, necessarily I don't have number 20. I think, number I think right now it'd probably number be... Number five. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. Okay. Wow. But is it really number five? What's yeah. one through four? It doesn't... I don't I don't have a top five. Oh, and if I had, then this, and this is in top five. <laughs> yeah, and maybe not as a book, but as a reading experience. Yeah, like exactly. It, was, it had a lot to do with me. Yeah, and see, my... that's what I was trying to say, but I was just gargling. You could be more but... eloquent next <laughs> yeah. time, but... <laughs> would you recommend it, Giovanna? Um, I would recommend the book. Yes, uh, yeah, in the sense that it has a good flow. It's it's in a it's light. It shouldn't be a light book because it's so dark. But uh, it's a nice read and it's pleasant, uh, even though it shouldn't be. And I feel horrible for saying that because I feel like I'm laughing at someone's pain. But yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot. But it was also. Uh, I hate Reddit for like parts of it uh, because Cheryl is uh, intolerable. But like, yeah, I keep going back to her. I like her. I want more. I like her. She's intolerable, but you want more. Mm -hmm. I think that says enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So thanks for listening. Next time we'll talk about Ellen Lewis Doppler, and I'm really looking forward to this. Come by, drink coffee, buy her books.